Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Hello and welcome to GodPod. Welcome back to those of you who've listened to episodes of this before and uh, welcome for the first time for those of you for whom this is your very first GodPod. And uh, it's um, uh, Graham Tomlin and uh, I'm the normal host for GodPod and I'm joined by... I don't know about the word normal, but otherwise <laughs> otherwise that's about right. Yes. Abnormal host, maybe that's the way it is. Um, and as you can tell from the ribaldry already... <laughs> Uh, we have our two regular contributors. Well, con- no, contributors is probably the wrong word, actually, is it? Sort of. You don't contribute much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, um, Graham. I don't know what the word is. Members, uh, whatever. Anyway, Michael. Michael Lloyd. Hello. Very nice to have you here. It's and, very nice to be had. And Jane Williams. Yes, I was not contributing ribaldry there. I'm, no, you I'm weren't. The, you were being well restrained. Yes. <laughs> For change. It is Lent, isn't it? <laughs> Michael is usually the one contributing ribaldry of various kinds. Anyway, it's the uh, three normal team here. Uh, but we also have a special guest with us today, and we are delighted to um, to welcome Professor Ben Quash, who is Professor of Christianity and the Arts at King's College London. That's right. Very pleased to be here. Ben, it's great. Um, I think this is your first time on GodPod. It is, yes. Yeah. And uh, we're yeah, very excited that you've been able to join us um, uh, today. So your, um, uh, your, your, your title, Christianity and the Arts, um, how long have you been doing this post as being Professor? 11 at- years. Um, okay. So I came from Cambridge where I'd been for a long time before that and uh, King's, uh, which has a long history of theology, in fact theology was the initial degree offered through King's when it was founded in the early 19th century, um, had decided to invent a new post and it was at a time when the whole of the university uh, was actively seeking more engagement with particularly London but more nationally also the sort of cultural and creative life of of Britain and particularly of London, seeing an opportunity for more impact-related activity, yeah. which is a big thing for universities. Mm. And um, so different departments were encouraged by the university to um, to come up with posts that might tie their discipline to some aspect of the cultural or creative industries. And mm. um, this post, Christianity and the Arts, was concocted. Yep. And there, when I saw it, I thought that's that's something I would love to do, given the opportunity. And you, you're a, a sort of theologian by background. I am, yeah. As opposed to an historian theologian. or something. Yeah, but yeah. So how, how did you get into the, the intersection between theology well, I'd and been, the arts? How did that begin for you? I began, um, actually my first degree was in English literature. Oh. So mine I had, too, that's, and Michael's. And mine. Isn't it? So I yes. have a theory so that... I'm yeah. the only real theologian here. Well, I have a theory <laughs> that, that there are, theologi- there are t- certain types of theologian, and p- one of the ways, obviously not in Jane's case, but one of the ways you can divide them up is by what first degree they did. Actually, theology as a second degree is often a very... It's a good time to do theology as a second degree because you actually know the questions. Grown up a bit. Well, you know know what questions you want to answer. Which you Um, don't when you're 18 sometimes. Yeah. But you do when you're a little bit older. But there are quite a number of people in in positions in academic theology at the moment who did maths as a first degree. Mm. And... um, there are quite a few who did English. Eric, so, Eric Maskell, who, yeah. who was at King's, was yeah. a, a mathematician Absolutely. and became a theologian. Um, and and I think often there are slightly different styles yeah. of theology that, yeah. not, not always, but that come out depending yeah. on what yes. people yes. have so I've often noticed first. that teaching students who come with different backgrounds and they 
tend to think inside different exactly. ways and come at it with different questions and yeah. and approach texts in different ways. Exactly. It does make a difference. Yeah. But to go back yeah. to your question, so I'd 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 come to theology as a second degree when I was training for ordination. Mm. And um but my love of English literature was very much alive. And when I got to the point of, of wanting to do postgraduate study, uh, I knew I wanted to try and connect with my two undergraduate, my two first degrees. And uh, David Ford, who became my PhD supervisor, said, you should work on Hans Urs von Balthasar, the Swiss oh, Catholic, oh. because of all the literary engagement in his thought. Oh. He wrote a, a huge 15-volume trilogy. I mean, it's a trilogy in 15 volumes. And the middle oh. five the middle part of that trilogy is called Theodrama, mm. and I engaged in my PhD with the drama. Um, so it was an art, it was an art and theology mm. PhD, but nothing to do with visual art yeah, at that yeah. point. But if you start working on Balthazar, you, you find that he carries you in different directions. And the, the first part of his trilogy, the first seven volumes, are about, called The Glory of the Lord, are much more about the visual. So having entered through the door of literature, I found myself then being conducted into other forms of the arts too. Yep. Through with Balthazar as my guide, and that that began what's now become actually a much larger part of my research and teaching, which is the, the relationship with the visual arts. And he was described—I can't remember by whom—as the most cultured man in Europe. Yes, wasn't he? I think you that, know, <laughs> which is a useful label. It to is, have. you know, it's difficult. I, I try and get my students to, to say have. that <laughs> <laughs> of me, but it doesn't. I it hasn't caught on quite. That's um, true. He was polymathic. He, he um, really was, yeah. and also um, knew. The writings of English evangelicals in a way that mm. very few Roman Catholic, mm. continental Roman Catholic theologians did. I mean, he Absolutely. quite Alan Stips and people like that. Um, yes, that's which true. Is, which is remarkable. That's true. And even actually engaging with English theology at all. Yes. Yeah, well, indeed. Evangelical or not. It's quite unusual for somebody coming out of the, mm. the German-speaking world at that time. Yeah. Um, and he quotes C.S. Lewis. He quotes Maskell, actually, as well, at yes. various points in his work. And and has an enormous section devoted to Gerald Manley Hopkins, who's yeah. obviously a poet theologian, but still a theologian. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and speaks very passionately about the, the particular gifts of uh, British tradition of theology to mm. back to continental Europe. He thinks that despite the Reformation and despite the suppression of visual images in the Church of England for nearly 300 years, um, the what he called the sort of, the idea of, um, that theology is done in images remains, he regarded as having remained very strong in English theology. Mm -hmm. And I guess partly through literature. Well, mm -hmm. the, the liturgy itself. And the, the liturgy, the images. Exactly. So the mind's eye is, is, is um, resourced all the time mm -hmm. by the sorts of literary traditions that, that uh, but, England, but English that, Christianity have generated, I think. But of course, one of the things that English Christianity kept going was the musical tradition. That's is, also true, of course. Is, is yeah. music part of, of your intersection of the It arts? is, but I feel I feel a real... I mean, I'm a bit of a bluffer when it comes to visual arts, so I'm honest. Um, I've learned mainly from teaching alongside art historians and, and taking copious notes and listening hard. Um, and one of the nice things about the MA that we run, which is joint with the National Gallery in London, is that it's co-taught so that I don't have to be the expert. Not everything. Um, yes, yes. So there's a, usually a curator from the gallery and and me in the classroom, and we the students are learning, but we're learning as well, both directions. Um, and that's actually been hugely formative mm. for me. So, but I'm still not trained as an art historian or an art critic. Um, but music is even more. I, I feel something I love, but have don't have the language. 
for. And, and in a way, actually, music, I think, is a tricky thing to render linguistic anyway, to render verbal, mm. perhaps even more than visual art. Mm. Um, and that, that relationship between visual, you know, the verbal and the visual, the idea that you can, in, in poetry or in language, conjure up a, a, a visual image, mm. but then that being transferred into an actual visual image is always a contested thing in, in yeah. religion generally, isn't it? And I was reminded of this, I was at a synagogue the other day and um, was, was, it was pointed out to me that you will not find a picture of a human being or an animal on the walls. If you go to a mosque, you won't find that either. And, uh, of course, within the Christian tradition, there's been, and you mentioned the Reformation, but, of course, before that, there's the iconoclastic controversy yeah. of the 8th and ninth centuries. And so there's been a sort of strong strand of suspicion of the image yeah. within lots of religious traditions. Um, do you, do you have, have any sympathy with that? Can you see where that's coming from? And clearly, you know, I can. You, 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 yeah. you must have thought about it a great deal. And yeah, no, I can't. In on fact, it? one of my bugbears, if you ask my students, they'll tell you that when it's rare that, you know, steam comes out of my ears. But if, if it were to come out, it would be often in, in front of um, works of art that sh seek to show the Trinity or mm. the first person of the Trinity. Mm. Um, and there's a huge tradition of that in Western art. Mm. Um, particularly images sometimes called the throne of grace images in which you see the father standing behind the son, often the son on the cross, supporting the cross or oh. in some other way um, depicted anthropomorphically oh. and with the spirit usually between them in, in the form of a dove. But that that seems uh, to me... As, to, as a wise theologian once said, a picture of two men and a bird. Uh, two blokes <laughs> and a bird, exactly, yeah. That's um, your phrase. That was Jane, I, I guess you didn't. Was, yeah. Really? Well, I've often quoted that, actually. Yeah. If I used it in a sermon recently, and the thing that everyone remembered about the sermon, so <laughs> thank you for that. It's all down to Jane. Yeah. Um, but the, that seems to me genuinely a mistake. I mean, I, I think mm. it's not there's nothing to be learned from it, because you can actually learn from mistakes. Um and also, as long as you are prepared to see what, what might be at issue oh. in them. But I think the problem with those images, which were certainly from the, um, oh, you know, in the late Middle Ages, enormously prolific, oh. Oh. was that I think people didn't feel there was even anything to question about them. Oh. And um, oh. there are various problems. One, one is that I think they render the Trinity too much like three separate entities. They oh. explore the, the, the persons and not the relations sufficiently. Yep. But the other is simply that the, that the first person of the Trinity, as we're told, dwells in invisible mm. light, and I'm mm. not sure that a mm. you know, big grey beard helps very much. And the, the other problem with him is uh, a friend of mine who's a Coptic Christian, um, sort of monophysite, mm. or miaphysite, he would say, not monophysite, miaphysite. Um, and uh, whenever he sees a, a, an icon of like that, mm. of the Trinity, he will always point out how the father always seems older than the son, which actually is heretical. Mm -hmm. yes. There is no sense that the father existed before the son. That's Arian. Yeah. Yeah. That's Arius just theology. And so yeah. he, he is practically opposed to it. But it's almost always when you see the Trinity depicted, mm -hmm. the father's got a beard and he's older than the son. Because we can't imagine a father who's not older than the son. That's, yes. that's where the, the breakdown of the, uh, the image was. You've written a book on heresy, haven't you? I've edited yeah. a book on it. Yeah. 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 Do you know Graham's um, work well? <laughs> <laughs> um, Thank you, Michael. Yeah, I have. And that was interesting. It was They originated sermons, which I think makes okay. them quite accessible yeah. and yeah. short. And um, we added a few because we, we thought there were more heresies that we could cover that we yeah. didn't fit into the original sermon series. Um, sorry, Graham. I mean, well, I was interested that, that the way you phrased it, Graham, in asking Ben this question was translating words into images. 
course, a, lo a lot of artists would say you can't actually do that, mm -hmm. that there's something primary about the image mm -hmm. uh, and that the words will always be putting um, a, a sort of imprisoning framework around mm -hmm. an image that does something much bigger than, mm -hmm. than words could. So the image is primary and the words are secondary. Uh, and I, th I think that, again, that's just a really interesting mm. question. I suspect it's it's different approaches. I, I suspect it's coming out that you all did English. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we started with words. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I'm very, it's, that's particularly um, acute question for me in the last few weeks because we, we run a seminar at King's jointly with the Courtauld Institute called the Sacred Traditions and the Art Seminar and it's theologians from our side and art historians from the Courtauld side who get together once a term for that. It's very popular, actually. Um, and we get two speakers as well to, to talk to each other from their different disciplines. But the last one we had um, involved uh, a, a professor of classical art from King's advancing the thesis that the very discipline of art history is fundamentally Protestant mm -hmm. because oh. it's logocentric, because the whole, the whole premise of at least traditional art history is that you render the significance of paintings or other works of visual art into words mm. Mm. and that the form if you like is just is just the entry point to the content mm -hmm. which is sort of Hegelian in the background the form content mm. distinction mm. and prior to that Lutheran I mean mm. Hegel being deeply influenced yep. by Lutheran yep. theology mm. and mm. the art historians in the room are very dis discomforted by this suggestion yeah. mm, sure. yes. but actually I do think there's something to be explored there yeah. and um, because in that context I mean what, what do you make of in the beginning was the word how you interpret about the that the image of the invisible God I mean the, oh. the, the, mm. the, the two mm. traditions I mean I, I yep. know the word tradition is is, is massively um, central um, but it's interesting that the word becomes flesh yeah um, uh, so the word spoken becomes accessible to us. Yeah. Which is why iconoclasm was rejected, because of the incarnation, mm. because yep. the words become visible, the invisible has become visible, you can see it, you can touch it, you right. can hear it, you can paint it, you can yep. So if you're sticking it, with can... the, the John Johannine prologue, yes. the language of light comes in almost immediately, it's language yep. of visual experience, mm. it's mm. there in the, in the epistles of John, along with touch and the yes. other things. And the beatific vision, at least you know, in, in traditional Christian understandings, is the is the sort of the end, the telos of yep. human yes. existence, and it's again a visual. It's explored as a visual mm -hmm. image. Yeah. So, and, yeah. and I, the reason I suppose why Protestants have always kind of emphasised the the word rather than the image is because of the whole biblical tradition of hero Israel, you know, obedience, uh, yeah. but the prophetic hear the word of the Lord, but. That's to neglect, I think, the, the wisdom literature tradition, which yeah. is about seeing, which is about examining, looking, going to creation and looking, uh, which Jesus picks up on. And, you know, yeah. Look, consider the lilies of the field. Consider the, it's Absolutely. It's much and more kind of visual. Very much. But, and even the prophets have theophanies, don't they? Yes. Often. So often the, the big, prior to the speaking is something seen, mm. yes. whether it's Isaiah or Ezekiel. And... and some of the prophetic activity is performed like performance art, isn't it? You know, Ezekiel again comes to mind. So again, these are these are more than verbal um, interventions. Yeah. And I guess that's right. I think the the Protestant nervousness about image has been that that nervousness about sort of capturing God into a particular picture mm. uh, and dis displaying that in 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 kind of uh, in the, those forms. But it seems to me the the flaw in it. And I remember reading through Calvin's. The part of the institutes where he 
criticizes the use of image. And strangely for Calvin, there's no Christological center to that argument. Mm. The bit he seems to miss is that, that in Christ, God has made himself visible. He has made himself flesh and therefore legitimates some yeah. presentation, or representation of, of the image of God in Jesus Christ in that way. And, and also neglects the fact that verbal uh, constructions can be limiting yeah, and, sure. and distorting yeah. as well. And I think that's one of the things... Although I'd... he would say that biblical ones don't. Right. Um, okay. <laughs> but it's one of the things I've found quite interesting yeah. in, in writing about art, I've done a little bit of that, is, is the sense that I am in, in a way constraining the picture hmm. in, in words. There's a, uh, yeah. there's a sense mm. of mm. trying to get control of the picture by putting it in words. And I know that words are equally imprecise mm. and therefore mm. you don't have that the, the sort of control, mm. the, although you have the illusion of control by putting it into words. But a picture always says more than one interpretation. Mm. People s see it differently, which is one of the things that um, that makes it a both a useful and a dangerous mm. tool. You can't actually mm. um, entirely predict how people are seeing mm. um, a, p a particular um, mm. picture. Uh, and I think that's, again, you can see why the suspicion, therefore, of using art arises, because yeah. it feels as though words are more fixed, yeah. you can transfer meaning, yeah. um, perhaps more directly. But yeah. it may be slightly illusory in itself anyway, because words yeah. in themselves are open yeah. to interpretation, especially when you get into poetry as opposed to prose. Yeah. You get into words which have multiple layers of meaning, which which can then be explored in the, quite the same way that you're talking about with with, with visual imagery as well. Yeah. You, I mean, you, you're involved in this great um, uh, uh, um, project to to get a, a visual commentary on the whole of scripture. Mm. Uh, so these issues must come up the whole time. Are people yes. picturing yeah, yeah, yeah. the words, or are they using a picture yeah. to bring a different aspect to the words? Um. Tell us a bit about the visual commentary. I'll tell you a little bit just to give you a sense of how it works. I mean, you can go online and visit it. I'm allowed to plug it. Yeah, yeah definitely. So it's do. Just the, do. It's <laughs> the VCS.org. So just just type the VCS.org and you'll you'll find it. Um, and it, it launched last November in, at Tate Modern, which we thought was a good place to just demonstrate the fact we wanted to get engaged seriously with um, with the importance of art for contemporary people, as well as um, historic works of art and of course the, the symbolic link with St Paul's Cathedral and the Millennium Bridge helped to make oh. to make a sort of visual statement about oh. what we want the visual commentary itself to be which is a sort of bridge between worlds but the um, the, the, the fundamental form it takes is actually quite simple it's um, we call them exhibitions they're virtual online exhibitions um, they're mini exhibitions really because they're very highly selective they involve three works of art that are chosen by a contributor to go to, to be gathered around a particular passage of scripture. So eventually, as you say, Jane, we'll have, we want to have covered the whole of the Christian canon. It's an extremely ambitious thing to do. And, mm. But the, the portion of scripture that a particular contributor or curator chooses um, is the starting point of what, what then we hope will become a dialogue. So it's an exhibition and also a conversation. There are two mm. sort of metaphors mm. that are at work here. You can either think of walking into room one in the National Gallery, which for those who go to the gallery will, will know it's the smallest exhibition space and it is just one room. And sometimes a room one exhibition is three, three works, one on each of the three walls, and the, you come in through the fourth, you know, the fourth wall, you come in through the doorway and you look at these three works and see how they 
speak to each other. Um, so in, in one sense, every exhibition on, in the visual commentary is like room one. But the other important image for me as, as we shape it is the idea of the Greek symposium, which had as its fundamental kind of physical infrastructure the three couches um, called the triclinium um, in Latin. And, you know, immediately you can conjure up in your minds the idea of people, you know, dropping grapes into their mouths and having their goblets <laughs> yeah. topped up with yeah. wine as they converse like about... like God really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. like, yes, as we are here now. Pass me a grape, Jane. <laughs> so, and, pass but, me but, the wine, grape. But in a sense, I mean, we are, we are sympotically arranged. Um, mm. This is a symposium type yeah. of format. And we have a shared topic. So do the exhibitions in the visual comedy. Their shared topic is the passage of scripture. And the artworks are the three, are three of the conversation partners. And the curator is, if you like, the host who's kind of trying to make sure that they converse well. Mm. Now, that, there are several things that that achieves. One is that you, you don't get, you have in some way avoid the problem of, which you would have if you only had one work of art for one passage, mm. which is that it's rendered, you know, this is, could be mistaken for being the definitive yeah. interpretation of the passage. It's rendered in, you know, you, you, it's rendered in one particular way, just as you can never quite read The Lord of the Rings again, having seen Frodo mm. played by, I yeah. can't even remember his name now, <laughs> Elijah Wood. Elijah, you know, that yeah. Elijah, Frodo becomes forever after Elijah yeah. Wood. We don't want that effect. So mm. the fact there are three immediately complicates things. And, and one solution, one alternative solution to not having images at all is to have more. Yes. Because uh, then they, they, yeah. they open things up together, mm. as do different points of view in a conversation. As so, do four Gospels rather than one. Exactly. Well, and indeed, yeah. all the biblical images, you know, yeah. verbal images, yeah. 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 they constrain each other, they enrich each other, they... Yeah. God as father, as judge, yeah. as teacher, as... Yes. Yeah. Exactly. If you just took one, it would yeah. be misleading yeah. in a yeah. number of ways. Um, there's then a further step that we're taking, which is to, to insist, and, and this is actually partly a necessary decision, but uh, it's more than that, it's something positively we want to embrace, which is that many passages of scripture don't have a visual, direct visual legacy. So, you know, not many artists sat down, you know, with a section of the past pastoral epistles and thought, I really want to make a picture about that. Um, and that's true of the huge amounts of the, the legal material in the Pentateuch. It's true of large parts of the prophets. It's remarkably true of the Psalms, even though they're quite visually rich. There are, apart from illustrated psalters. I was going to say, that, that's yeah. the, the obvious exception. But often it, the psalters themselves draw on narrative parts of scripture, so stories about David, let's say, yeah. yes. and put them next to the psalms rather than being directly responsive or to the psalms. Or sometimes nothing to do with the psalms. Exactly. You know, a giant skate chasing a man across. <laughs> exactly. So, so then, and in a way, that, that's um, another for, sort of permission that we feel we've got to to create new juxtapositions so not only to look for direct lines of inspiration from scripture to art but actually to let our curators make connections that may never have been made before um, and that's bold and um, often quite personal and subjective um, it means we have we choose curators and this is why we choose people like Jane who we trust to be theologically intelligent about the connections they want to make but it does mean you can you can put a uh, you know a Tracy M in as someone has done you know in conversation with um, the Ten Commandments, say. Mm-hmm. So um, I fell in love here in St Pancras Station. Uh, Casey Strine, who's a professor of biblical studies in Sheffield, has mm-hmm. has chosen that work to go with the Ten Commandments because 
he wants people to revisit the idea that the commandments are a form given by, to us by God to enable us to express our love mm. of God, which I think is a wonderful way to open them up. And the, the artwork, mm. I presume, had nothing to do, in the, in the intentional mind of the artist, had nothing to do with the Ten Commandments. But that new juxtaposition opens up a new possibility in both the artwork and the scriptural text. Um, and our hope is that people will never quite look at the Tracy Emin work again, having having in the same way rather than just never look at it (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) and vice versa that the scriptural text will have a new resonance for them I was going to ask you you know since starting this project and being deeply involved in it has it changed the way you read the bible has it um brought out aspects of the biblical text that you did not see before or Mm. dimensions of it how has it changed the way you I suppose you read it as the director of the project and this this, I could give you a more pious answer than this, but one of the things that's changed is that I'm constantly thinking partly with my VCS hat yeah, on. Yeah. How would how would this be curated? Yeah. Who could curate this? Yeah. Um, what works might we encourage them to consider? Yeah. So that that is a constant. Okay. What's the pious answer? Yes, <laughs> that's what I was going to ask. <laughs> it's not a, it's not unconnected, I suppose. But um, uh, I think one of the other things that one of the things that's significantly changed for me is that is that I now read uh, sc- scriptural texts with a sense that they um, are pressing towards the conversational form. So that that they, they there's something, as it were, almost intrinsic to scripture itself that um, that seeks to ramify into into conversation hmm. now but before I came to King's and before I became anywhere near beginning work on this project hmm. I worked in Cambridge the Cambridge Interfaith program hmm. Hmm. and one of the key things that we did uh, a lot of in those days and still goes on actually in, in all sorts of ways and in all sorts of parts of the world was something called scriptural reasoning hmm. which was precisely also a sort of symposium type hmm. conversational yep. model of engaging not only with the Bible, but with with the Quran and with Jewish readers, also with their own particular canon of Hebrew scripture, and that that sense that scriptural texts are in extraordinarily generative starting points for conversation has carried over into the visual commentary. So I think those two things have changed my view of the Bible as fundamentally. A conversation starter as conversational and what one of the big discoveries for me actually after we started the visual commentary was um, I knew all about the Talmud all about I knew well how important Talmudic tradition is for Jews and that that's if you like the the, the representation on the on physical pages of conversational activity around yeah. um, sacred texts the, the the insights of rabbis are selected and gathered and and passed on in conjunction with each other as a conversation right. with the invitation to those who go on and study Talmud to join it. Right. Um, what I hadn't realised was that Christians have their own tradition of this, which I think largely we've lost, and that's very sad. Um, but in the early centuries of the church, something called the Katina tradition did just what the Talmud did. So you can look them up, and, and you know there are examples in the British Library and elsewhere where... Um, 
big, a big composite page, again, with large fat margins, um, enabled a smaller scriptural passage to be reproduced in the middle, and then yep. all around it, mm. significant parts of patristic commentary would be mm. assembled. Mm. And again, a conversation was, was kind of captured and distilled mm. on the page, and then the church was invited yeah. to join in with it. Because I suppose most... Um, for most of its history, the Bible has been a conversation. It's been used conversationally because, mm. I mean, until printing and until the majority of people could read for themselves, that that would be the way in which you mm. would access scripture. Yeah. People reading it to you, discussing it. We've got um, evidence that when Augustine preached sermons, people interrupted him and chatted yeah. to him mm. about it, mm. and and so uh, that we've in a way changed the way in which we. Yeah. Engage and a lot of scripture. our reading of scripture now is done individually. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we encourage people to have a quiet time, or say the daily office, or whatever it might be, on yeah. their own, perhaps, or we read scripture on our own. But it sounds from what you're saying that you you'd want to say scripture is meant to be read together. I do, yeah, because it turns us all in, into the Ethiopian. In Bible study is actually a crucial part of engaging I agree. with Bible in, in a group, in as a group. opposed to otherwise we all become an Ethiopian eunuch in the Book of Acts. You know, sitting yeah. in alone, yeah. thinking I don't really know what to make of this. Yeah, and and then Ben, you've talked a bit about our your reaction and. Uh, are you getting reaction from other people? Are you getting a sense that this is opening um, scripture up to a, a whole new range of people, that bridge that you were talking about? Uh, yeah, early indications are good. So, yeah. as I say, we just launched in November and we're now in March, so it's still quite early days. But we are, the, the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive so far and quite diverse in terms of the mm. the um, the sorts of people that it's come from. So... Um, we're very clear that we want this to be an ecumenical resource. So it was very good in, in the first couple of months after we launched to find it was sort of a front page story on the tablet, which is the major sort of Catholic mm. uh, periodical. Weekly, is it weekly or fortnight? I think mm. weekly. Mm. Anyway, um, and one of the editors of, of it wrote a very personal piece about how uh, she was on a pun punishing um, sort of set of international... Um, flights in order to report on something in, in took her to New Zealand and then back via various ways and she had hours in airports and um, and the visual commentary sort of spoke to her in mm. all of that period of dislocation and waiting and she's, she speaks very movingly about how she sort of felt it enabled her to pray so that was wonderful mm. to hear that and, and quite, as I say, quite personal and devotional even though it's a scholarly resource, in a sense it's funded by you know, good quality scholarship, um, we want it to be something that people can pray with. And we've also had coverage from some quite sort of evangelical press, again very positive. And that's interesting because, of course, th those parts of the church don't have a long tradition with visual yeah. art. But I think that, that we're in a very interesting time because um, pr traditionally more image-suspicious Protestant strands of the church are also very aware that this is a language that particularly younger people speak. They speak visual, mm -hmm. and um, uh, and if you're if you have a strong missional imperative to preach the gospel in all languages, you need to speak visual. So that's interesting too. What we have had a bit less of so far, but I'm still, you know, as I say, it's early days. Is are signs that this is proving a useful resource for those in art museums and galleries but but I'm hopeful that that will come in time mm. because I, I think a lot of um, the custodians of our art in major collections are increasingly conscious that 
they hold in trust for people works of art that are often profoundly religious in content and intended for devotional mm. use. Mm. And they yeah, wanted to give people an yeah. opportunity to explore what that means and yeah. meant. Because yeah. um, it's one of the odd things about our our way of viewing art is at present is we put them in art galleries. Yeah. Objects that were meant to be objects of worship. They were meant to be in churches. They were meant to kind of stimulate the religious yeah. imagination, not just the cultural imagination. Exactly. And actually putting them in an art gallery is just like the odd thing to do. Yeah. To, to an act of worship. It's like kind of you know, objectifying it in some ways. And so maybe this is beginning to bring those back into the into their original space, their original function, which is to yeah. interact with the biblical text. It's interesting, to in, in the Ashmolean in Oxford, where, where I live, um, they you live got, in the Ashmolean? Well, I, <laughs> I'm an exhibit. <laughs> um, due to age, mainly, I think, <laughs> antiquity. Um, but they have a, a coin, one of the coins that Titus had made to celebrate his victory uh, in the Jewish war mm. in AD 70. Um, and uh, probably made from melted down bits of gold from the temple. Mm. And so you get Jewish people coming into the Ashmolean to pray mm. in the presence mm. of a sure. little bit of the temple. Of yeah. uh, and that slightly blurs the boundaries yeah. between museum mm. Mm. And, and place of worship yeah. in, in yeah. quite interesting ways. It really does. And I think it does, um, it counters, a, I suppose, an aspect of the way in which the arts have been treated in or recent times, it's almost a seeing, there are there are aspects of thought that see sort of the art is our salvation in some way. Mm. You know, you think of the Bloomsbury set and, you know, F.R. Levis and and um, those kind of people. And it reminds me, there's a, there's a comment that Terry Eagleton makes in one of his, um, you know, very sort of um, strident things that he says, um, where he talks about how, you know, there's this idea that art is somehow our salvation, art is the kind of way of transcendent, art is the future, art is our salvation resource. And it's also drawing attention to the, the fact that actually kind of classical art is a pretty minority yeah. kind of in, you know, um, activity. And he, he says about it, if art is indeed a modern version of transcendence and even smaller number of men and women are recipients of grace than the most rigorous Calvinist might suppose. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I suppose I can see what you're doing in some ways in trying to kind of reconnect religious art with its original purpose is finding its true place as opposed to something which uh, can itself become uh, a, a kind of means of salvation, mm. a kind of the kind of idolatry which I suppose some maybe sometimes was part of that suspicion of art in, in mm. the first place. Yes. Mm. Yeah. It's finding the yeah. right place for, 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 you know, so much of Western art, which is religious, yeah. as an act of devotion, I, as an act of worship, yeah, interacting with the... I mean, so the one, one of the things I love about what the National Gallery has been brave enough to do in the last few years, really since 2000, and the, the great... Seeing Salvation mm. exhibition, mm. which blew yeah. sort of blew everyone's yeah. expectations. You know, it went sky high. I mean, it went way beyond everyone's expectations. Mm. Um, that was a game changer, I think, in terms of what galleries have certainly the National Gallery and some others have been willing to do since, mm. because it allowed there to be not just as it were art historical questions asked about how did one style influence another, how were these things made, how did technique evolve, who who paid for works of art, you know, all of those provenance mm. and material mm. and technique questions, but actually existential questions. Mm. Not not heavy-handedly saying you, you can only get anything out of this if you mm. sign up as a Christian, but but actually asking what, how can you explore questions about the meaning of your own life, about what it is 
to be a parent, about what it is to die, what you might mm. hope for, if anything, beyond death, in the company of these works of art. And that was everyone was licensed to do that in the mm. exhibition, and, it, and the response was wonderful. Mm. Um, the gallery's since done that with several exhibitions, including Devotion by Design, which is about altarpieces, and they took the step of creating a, one of the gallery spaces in that exhibition as a sort of quasi-ecclesiastical space with they built mock altars around it and hung the paintings back in the position of altarpieces. They had candles and that they borrowed from the Victorian Albert Museum on the high altar, in inverted commas, and played background music of Gregorian chant and created the atmosphere of a place of worship. Now, it it risked being kitschy, but I think it was really, really, again, very well received and and a really interesting way to get people's imaginations And it, going as they think about why these works were made at all. Yeah. And it's, I mean, they've done the same thing for um, for history in a way, the, the history of the world in, in yeah. certain objects. And, and, and it does seem that there there is a, 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 that objects, art, things that you can see and touch, that you can see somebody's made in mm. that very particular kind of way, reaches a different part of the imagination mm. that that we have very often neglected. Um, As music does. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. If if the museum art gallery world is becoming a bit more open to mm. that dimension, isn't it time the church recovered something of its function as a patron of the arts mm. and, and started commissioning mm. uh, composers and artists mm. and writers and poets? And well, it's astonishing, actually, how much it still is. Okay. Um, I mean, I think the... And the willingness of art, the, the interest of artists in being commissioned yes. for church spaces is, is also remarkable. I mean, cathedrals, I think, have led mm. the way. Mm. Yes. And some, particularly St Paul's, has a lot of um, very, very interesting recent commissions. But many other cathedrals have done similar things. But I think more and more parish churches, are, are uh, if they have... Some money. The, the, some money, frankly, and the occasion <laughs> yeah. to. Yeah. They, are, they are, and um, and also new musical compositions. Yeah. And So I, I, I think... Or even being the, the place in which exhibitions are held. Yeah. So mm-hmm. local artists can use a mm-hmm. parish church as a place in which art can be, can be present yeah. and viewed uh, as that's appropriate. Yeah. yeah. And they're, ma- they're magnificent spaces. Which, yeah. So very often, I mean, artists who might charge big fat fee f- for their work mm. will make an exception if they're given the opportunity to work in a, a church space because partly because they might feel well disposed towards the church but but very often just because it's not the kind of space they get, get, get offered to, every get day yeah, yeah. Yes. exactly yeah. Yes. Yeah. and art gallery spaces can be a bit clinical yeah yeah, um, yeah. And, and sometimes that's good because it, it focuses on the work of art yeah. and sometimes the engagement between the work of art and the space around it is itself yeah. kind of mm. resonant yes Ben, I sense we could probably go on with this conversation for a lot longer if we had um, the ability to do so, but um, we've probably reached the end of our time. So we're really grateful to you for coming and being part of um, part of GodPod today. So um, thank you so much. And again, just a reminder of the, the website it's, and if people want to look, up, look it up. It's thevcs.org, thevcs.org. It's a visual commentary on scripture. Visual commentary on scripture, yeah. Just, um, and, uh, it's growing all the time. So we, we have not quite 100 exhibitions up there now and... There'll be about one and a half thousand, we hope, Fantastic. by the end of the project. So keep keep visiting as well. Okay. So Ben Quash, thank you very much indeed. Thank you to Jane. Thank you. And to Michael. Thank you very much. And uh, we will see you next time. 
That Was God Pod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.